1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. Now, when we were in this text, the last two sessions, we did the first 16 verses of chapter 7. Then I skipped this passage, and we went to verses 25 through 40. Now, if you remember, 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the longest chapters in the entire New Testament or the entire letters of Paul. So it's vast in its scope, and yet you have the first half on the principles of marriage, if you're looking at the subtitle in your text, and then the latter half is a section on the unmarried and the widowed. But right in the middle is this passage, which mentions neither singleness, marriage, divorce, unmarried, or anything related to marriage at all. And yet, it's in the middle of these two longer sections dealing with the issues of marriage and the like. Well, obviously, if you are familiar with the text, um, it is often addressed as the bloom where you are planted text. So let's just read it, and then we'll come back to it a little, a little more in detail. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. What, was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Well, let him not seek circumcision. For neither, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he is called when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain in God. So what does that have to do with marriage? I'm not speaking rhetorically. Why would this passage be stuck in the middle of two very lengthy treatises about divorce and marriage and the unmarried and the widowed. What in the world was Paul thinking? Was this a cut and paste mistake <laughs> by the editor who just went, oh, put it here, Let's, we, did, you know, we had this extra stuff and we just stuck it here. What's the, con what's the connection? Because usually when this is taught, it is pulled out like I'm doing today completely out of context. So I would like to first, let's start with its context, and then we'll pull it out of context, and then we'll put it back into context. So right now, why did Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, place this passage in this part of the scriptures? What do you think? You want us to expose our ignorance, is that it? Hmm? You want us to expose our ignorance, I suppose. Okay. 
like we're all doing right now. <laughs> Go ahead. talking about how if you're single, you should remain single if you're able to. Mm -hmm. If you're married, don't seek divorce. Kind of like in the, the position that you're in when God calls you, you he has you in that position for a purpose. You right. shouldn't Very good. think that it's maybe a changing that, that to be a better Christian that you, that you need to change the way that you are. That's a very good, a good observation because the people in the congregation were saying, well, if you're married, you know, you, you, the whole idea of sexual union is not good. So you shouldn't be ha doing that. It's better if you're single over here. And, and by the way, you should divorce so that you can be more godly. This is the kind of stuff that was rolling around and if you notice, in context, this passage is right after that section about marriage, divorce, and singleness, etc. And then he moves on to the betrothed and the widowed. So in that context, yeah, there's a, there's a good connection there. Maybe marriage is like being a monster. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Remember our illustration, Does, for those of you, you know, you can, you can break your relationship with your, your uh, mother and father, you can break the relationship with your siblings, you can break the relationship with your, your, your children, but you, you cannot break the bonds of marriage. So, anyway, so there's that little interesting little thing. Any other thoughts here? Because this is, this is the foundation of where we even begin our study. Why is Paul addressing this now? It's a type of relationship. Mm -hmm. You talk about marriage, it's a relationship, and slave and master is a type of relationship. Very good. Certain responsibilities, and he makes those parallels other places. Yes, he does. In fact, I wrote down at the very top of the page here, I said, whether you're married or single, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Oh, wait, doesn't he talk about that in other places too? Mm -hmm. And I wrote here, it's not relational, it's not racial, and it's not societal. The whole issue is, where is your focus with God? Where has God called you? And we always take, well, he's called me this, but I don't like it. You know, I'm not happy. I wrote here, we wrestle with discontent at many times in our lives. At some point, we're unhappy with our lot. That can go all the way back to junior high, where you got put in a class or a, a group of kids that you just don't like any of them, and you wonder, how can I get out of this? I mean, I even have a... Uh, I know of a book was published by Bethany House year before I would even work for them. It was called "What If I Married the Wrong Person?" Now I was talking to a fellow who was a professional Christian counselor, and he said that's one of the best books that he recommends to a spouse who is unhappy in the relationship and is asking that question. He says the problem is it's not a book that they can take home with them. Yeah. 
<laughs> Very, you know, casually leave that on the coffee table. <laughs> hey, Charlie, see what I'm reading? <laughs> anyway, um, but the issue of discontent, if you think about it, Lucifer, as an angel of God, was discontent and rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him. And ever since then, Lucifer, Satan, has been using that as a crowbar in the minds and lives and hearts of everybody on this planet and really attacks the church. You know, I didn't like that song that we just sang in the service. Because I didn't know it. <laughs> you're discontent suddenly, and your mind is not on the fact that you're supposed to be worshiping God at that moment. You're thinking of, why did Luke pick that song this week? Couldn't he have picked one that's my favorite? Seriously. I, and I have to catch myself because things like that happen all the time. And it's Satan saying, he just basically, you're looking forward towards the, the sanctuary, you're looking and you're trying to think about God and Satan steps right into the picture. And it's not a photobomb. He is right in the front, so you can't see around him. And guess what? He's in the form of a mirror. So you're looking at yourself. This discontent, content, discontentedness. One guy put it this way. When we're young, we want to be older. When we're old, we want to be younger. If it's old, we want something new. And if it's new, we want something newer. If it's small, we want something bigger. If it's big, we want something really big. <clears throat> if we have $100, we want 200 If we have 200 we want 500 if we have an apartment, we want a condo. If we want to have a condo, we want a house. If we have a house, we want a bigger house, or a new house, or a nicer house. Or maybe we should scale back down and go back to the apartment again. If we have a job, we dream of a better job, a bigger job, a closer job, a bigger office, a better boss, better benefits, more challenges, bigger opportunities, nicer people to work for, and more vacation time. We always are. We lack contentment. Paul writes about this many other places, about being content. And yet, even though that's, that word isn't used here, there's that theme that's interwoven with this context of... Because notice, notice verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24. I'll read them all together. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition into which he was called. Verse 24. In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain in God. Called, called, called. You catch a theme here? It's the only major word like that that's repeated all three times in these seven verses. We are called to this. So, you know, he brings in circumcision. You want to go, what? Paul, we're talking about marriage. You're bringing in circumcision? I don't understand. Well, 
it is very possible, like those that were saying you need to divorce because that's more spiritual, because your spouse is not a believer, so that would be the right thing to do. There are also those who say, well, as a sign of my holiness and my, as a sign of no longer being Jewish, I'm going to reverse the circumcision that was given to me when I was a young boy. I mean, I can think of better <laughs> ways to reverse things. Just say it. Uh, <laughs> let's not go to that extent. However, there is historical precedence for this. For those of you who were here six years ago, we studied the Apocrypha for half a year, going into those 400 silent years between Malachi and Matthew. And in 1 Maccabees, chapter 1, it reads, In those days lawless men came forth from Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. Since we separated from them, many evils have come upon us. So in other words, the Greeks were invading. Alexander the Great is sweeping through the country, the countryside. And the Jews are saying, well, ever since these guys have come, it's, it's been a problem. So we need to be more like the Greeks. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king, and he authorized to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to Gentile custom. And gymnasiums, it's not like our high school gym. This was an athletic field. This is where they would have sport. And do you remember the uniforms that the Greeks wore? Nothing. Nothing. They were completely naked. So the Jews were obviously Jews to the naked eye, so to speak. No pun intended. Well, actually, it was intended. Um, so they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to Gentile custom and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. And when Antiochus saw that his kingdom was established, he determined to become king of the land of, of the area and he might reign over both Egypt and Israel. Antiochus was the one who ultimately invaded Jerusalem, went into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the Holy of Holies, on the, uh, just desecrated the altar. And at that point was when the Maccabees rose up, threw off the Greek revolt, and we have Hanukkah, which celebrates that revolution. So. This history isn't that old to Paul. To us, it's 2,000 some odd years ago. To Paul, it was just the last generation, maybe two. And there are probably grandfather so-and-so remembers when it happened. 
or at least remembers when he was a child when it happened. So, I mean, this is very close. And so for Paul to talk about, don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision, there's historical context of this. And some of these people were saying, well, we need to undo that because that was a sign of the old, the old covenant and we're part of the new covenant. He's going, guys, what are you doing? Remember, well, I'll just read it to you. The entire book of Galatians is based on the fact of the Judaizers that were coming into Galatia and saying, oh, sure, you can be Christians, but to be a real Christian, you have to be circumcised because then you're fulfilling the law of God. And the book of Galatians is Paul responding to that. It also was the... Um, the flashpoint of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And you had Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James in a debate over this issue. And it was ultimately resolved that really a mark of the flesh is not a, a criteria for salvation never meant to be. Now, there are those who read this passage where he says, was any of you at the time of his call uncircumcised, let him not seek circumcision, then say, well, Paul is a hypocrite. Why would they say Paul is a hypocrite? Because of Timothy. Because of Timothy. Acts 16, verse 3 when Timothy joined Paul on the missionary journeys, he circumcised Timothy. I'll read that passage so you can understand it. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father, Timothy's father, was a Greek. And he didn't want that to be the topic of conversation. So he wanted to talk about Jesus Christ and they wanted to talk about the fact that Timothy wasn't circumcised. It's like, okay, let's just remove this issue, not make it an issue, so we can talk about what we need to talk about. And that is Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So is Paul a hypocrite? No. There was a reason behind it. Here, people were doing these things for the wrong reasons and they were doing it out of discontent not out of mission verse 20 each one should remain in the condition in which he was called so there are those who will say well what Paul means here and the, what the Bible means is you should never ever change your circumstances. Ever. God called you to this job of putting rivets in an airplane. And even though you have a law degree and you're called to be a missionary in China, you should not go. Because God called you to be a riveter. Isn't that what the text says? Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. 
if you take things that literally, sure. You can take a verse like that out. You can um, crochet it on a pillow if you'd like. You can make a poster out of it. You can make a meme out of it. You could tattoo it on your chest if you like. That doesn't mean that's what it means. It, when things are pulled out of context and applied incorrectly, you have incorrect biblical theology. In this case, he is talking to a specific people in a specific situation. You know, thinking of, when I was thinking of this, thinking of the Riveter, I actually read his story about a guy who, his job was putting the little metal rivets on airplanes. And he was so good at it, he would put a handful of rivets in his mouth. Rather than putting it by hand and then hitting it with a hammer, he spit them into the hole. And he would do that eight hours a day and no one could do what he did. And when he retired, they had to get machines to replace him because he was so accurate, he never missed. Now, that is a guy who bloomed where he was planted. He was really good at this. And he enjoyed it. He took pride in it. You know what? Good for him. He was not discontent. He was content, and that's where he should be. Well, then Paul brings in servants, slaves, the bond servants. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. All are one in Christ. But you know what? If you have the ability to gain your freedom, go ahead. In other words, verse 20 is countered by the end of verse 21. You can, if you have the opportunity to become free, do it. Don't say you have to be a servant all your life just because that's how you were called. He's saying, if you have that opportunity, sure. And some would say, well, this could have been Paul's opportunity to thoroughly condemn slavery. And he, in many ways, does condemn inappropriate or wrong slavery, but you have to understand is over half of the population were slaves. Some were, and we have to be very careful, we don't apply American slavery. And the idea of abducting African people and sticking them in boats and shipping them over to the U.S. to work the cotton fields to this, because it's not the same thing. Sometimes these people were indentured. They got into debt, and the only way they could pay off their debt was to begin working for that person in a slave role. You have to be really careful about it. And if you also remember, there's a little tiny letter to Philemon in the New Testament about Onesimus, the slave, who was discontent, felt he needed to get away, stole stuff from his, his master, Philemon, and escaped to Rome where he ran into Paul. And Paul talked with him and said, what you need to do is go back and make restitution, carry this letter with him, and that's the letter we have. And tradition has it is that his master accepted him, welcomed him, 
as a brother, and the uh, man Onesimus worked for Philemon from that day forward in an appropriate way, because what he had done was wrong. He stole and then broke his agreement with the, with the man. Fascinating, isn't it? For he who is called in the Lord, verse 22, as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord, and likewise he who is free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. In other words, every one of us in this room is a bondservant. We are a slave of Christ. We are a bondservant to him. Verse 23, you were bought with a price, which repeats chapter 6, verse 20, which says, you, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are not our own. We are in Christ and of Christ and for Christ. And so, brothers, in whatever condition that you are called, let him remain there. Later, Paul writes something that I think is, can be applied in all sorts of circumstances, but it applies very well here. It's Colossians 3, 22, following. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your early ma earthly masters, but not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is the application of this passage. So, Let's move on to the fun part of this morning's uh, situation. This was interesting, but the next part, chapters 8, 9, and 10. We will only look at chapter 8 today. Um, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are actually a unit. So if you have your Bibles, I would open up the Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10. So you can kind of just, just glance at the totality of it, because you don't have it on the piece of paper. Um, it starts with Paul's statement, Now concerning food offered to idols. Well, every time Paul writes, Now concerning, you see that in... Oh goodness, chapter 12, where it says now concerning spiritual gifts, is that there was a question that had been written to Paul in the form of a letter. And the question was being asked, what do we do about food that was for, uh, uh, offered to idols? So we have a very lengthy, if you put all three chapters together, we've got how many verses here? It's 93... 73 verses, looks like. 73 verses related to this topic. So I had to step back and I said, okay, I need to kind of clear my head you know, before I start this passage. And I ended up writing up a whole bunch of just random things on a piece of paper because the first thing I wrote down was, 
Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. (laughs) Because this section of scripture gets right to the heart of what, of uh, your actions as a believer in society, in societal situations. Now, like I did in our preamble to the discussion about divorce and marriage, we are all going to disagree on many things in this arena. Um, So I just simply ask, we lay aside those, let's not get into weird debates or get too into the deep weeds of this kind of stuff. But let's look at what the text says. Because what we have here is a section of scripture that doesn't really answer any of the questions that burble to the top of many church discussions. For example, is it right to shop on Sunday? Should women wear wear makeup? I mean, these are all issues that have been around for 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, Can a Christian play golf on Sunday? And have a good score? Oh, wait. Um, That part isn't there. Is there anything wrong with rock music? Is there anything wrong with rap music? Which, by the way, is an oxymoron. Anyway, is it music? (laughs) No, it's rap. Um, What about movies? What are you able to watch? Well, do you base it on the ratings? I mean, we obviously know, oh, R-rated movies, no. PG-13, well, that's okay. Well, you do know that in Hollywood, to get a PG rating, they will actually put in the F word on purpose to get the PG-13 rating. If it is a, um, uh, let's see, if it's a adjective describing someone, then it's R. If it's a noun, it's PG-13, same word. I was once actually patronized by a fellow in a discussion about my opinion related to Christian fiction and its definition when he found that, because he asked, what do you, you you and your wife, you go to R-rated movies? I went, absolutely not. And he goes, oh, well, you're just out of touch. This is a Christian author telling me his litmus test was whether or not. I said, why would I want to assault my eyes with women's flesh and hear language that's inappropriate and over incredibly overly violent material? Why would I want to do that? And he goes, well, that's how you understand the world. Very interesting conversation, to say the least. Oh, what about dancing? I mean, you get too close to that girl and you might start thinking the bad things. But, of course, David danced before the Lord. Um, Can a Christian drink beer or wine or coffee? The whole room went, okay, now you're getting too close. 
But remember, we have the entire LDS church. Bans coffee and Diet Coke or Coca-Cola products because of the caffeine that's in it. That's a drug. I remember being absolutely shocked to my core when I was a junior in high school and I opened the refrigerator door and for the first time in my entire life I saw a bottle of cooking sherry. <laughs> in the I didn't know it was cooking sherry. I just saw a bottle of wine and I just went, what just happened in my life? Because, you know, that kind of stuff. No, there's no drinking. It's bad. So why do we have it in our house, Mom? And she explained, I went, I mean, you're putting that in my food? I mean, I got very fundamentalist at that, um, about it. Well, what about smoking? You know, now smoking's kind of out of favor, but growing up, it was very common. I mean, it was on airplanes. You still remember the ashtrays in the airplane armrest? It's smoking sections in the airplane, which is kind of silly when you realize that the smoke can travel past row 14. <laughs> I still remember. generation is listening to you going, what? Yeah, I know. Well, I still remember being shocked when one of the deacons of our church, when I came around, I was probably nine or ten years old, came around the corner and there was this, you know, Deacon Jack was on a smoke break outside at church. And I went, you sinner. I mean, I was so appalled by that because we've been taught, don't smoke, it's sinful. When I grew up, no playing cards in the house. We could not have playing cards because that was demonic, because it led to gambling. Apparently my great-grandfather, who was a uh, fiery peak preacher, uh, at least according to family tradition, he could walk into any one of his congregants' home and know whether or not there was a deck of cards in the house. Now, I look back on that now and thinking, he had a nine out of 10 chance of being right every time. <laughs> they had just hit it from the pastor when they knew he was coming over. <clears throat> we just had Halloween three days ago. I did not celebrate Halloween growing up. I could give the candy out, but I could not go trick or treating. I could not dress up. We don't celebrate the Satan, Satan holiday. I did get to dress up once. It was on, I think it was fourth grade. It was in a, school thing, so I went to school as a wounded Civil War veteran, and I remember being so happy. I also grew up in a house without a Christmas tree, because my dad took the verse out of Jeremiah that a tree is an idol. So you see, every one of you has different backgrounds, and different situations, and different litmus tests of what is appropriate and what isn't. Oh, exactly. I mean, this was, I remember, we we're going to get married. He says, what about the Christmas tree? I went, actually, I don't care. It meant nothing to me. Literally meant nothing to me. There was no sentimentality. It did not identify me to me as Christmas. For Lisa and her family, absolutely. So I went, okay, you know, fine. Well, now I love having a tree. Yeah. Well, and then there's Republicans who could marry Democrats. Oh, yeah. 
or U of A marrying ASU. <laughs> you see, there's all sorts of things <laughs> that can get wrapped up in this. And so what happens is that because we get confused, we go to our pastor and we say, can you give us a list of what's appropriate and what's not? And some churches do. That's dangerous. Because then you're creating what? Idols and legalism. It becomes, well, if, you, if we catch you at the movie theater coming out of the wrong show, we need to pray for you and you need to repent. You end up becoming the Pharisee saying and praying, Lord, thank you I'm not like him because he's such a sinner and I'm not. You see what happens? You create hypocrisy. You create all sorts of problems. The thing is, there are lists in the New Testament. Paul is very, very explicit on certain behaviors, and we can go find them if you like, that are very specific. So if someone wants to say, well, the whole gay community and the whole you know, gay lifestyle, that's perfectly fine. You want to go, well, that's an area where the Bible is not in the gray. It's black and white. This is sinful behavior, period. You can't walk around that one. Should you smoke? Um, Bible doesn't even mention it. So is it okay or not? Bible doesn't even mention it. You know, Dwight L. Moody condemned Charles Spurgeon for smoking cigars. It almost broke their relationship. There are people that won't read C.S. Lewis because he, dro he drank wine. And he had a pipe. And he had a pipe. Oh yeah, on top of it. And he took pictures with it as proof. <laughs> I mean, goodness. Well, don't you know any better? This is before Facebook and you're putting it out there for everyone to see. To show how some, and I'm talk, not talking churches, I'm talking about society, tries to regulate behavior. Anyone hear what China did this week? October 30th, President Xi Jinping released the outline for implementing the moral construction of citizens in the new era. And it's a document laying out behavior of the people. Everything from civic education to how parents should teach their children <clears throat> to rubbish sorting to how to raise the national flag to how to lower their carbon footprint while traveling to how to have faith in Xi, the president, and the Communist Party. It's a guideline. And then uh, Tuesday they passed laws that if you are playing music without speaker, without your headphones on, in a public place like a subway or wherever, you can be fined because you're disturbing the peace. So what would you rather have? Liberty or regulation? Well, we all want liberty. We're Americans, right? Well, so let's bring it to the church. Do you want liberty or do you want regulation? 
And so Paul, very graciously, because the Old Testament doesn't address it, is to help us today so that we know what to do with food that is sacrificed to idols. Because that is our main concern in 21st century America right now, right? This is what we care about. We are so concerned about whether or not that hamburger was sacrificed to an idol before we ate it. No. It seems it's so interesting how God, in his divine inspiration, takes this question that Paul receives, we bring it forward 2,100 years, and we're going, it has nothing to do with me. Charles Spurgeon did not preach on 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There is not a sermon on that passage. There's passages on 7, 9, and 10, but not chapter 8. Thanks, Charles. Because, I don't know why, maybe it just, you know, maybe he died before, maybe it was on his sermon planner, we don't know. But it doesn't seem to have any application to us. Or does it? And I'll admit, I've gone through this, and I wrestled with this many times, and I end up, like probably many of you, thinking I have the answer, and then I end up contradicting myself, or trying to figure out what is the principle or guideline here that, is, that Scripture is trying to apply to us. So, we'll, you know, for the next 15 minutes, we'll struggle with the text a little bit and uh, give you some preliminaries because we'll come back to this more as we study chapters 9 and 10. Because this is kind of the foundation of what comes after this. So, dear Paul, this is concerning food offered to idols. We know that, and the ESV is interesting, they put a quote around it, all of us possess knowledge, suggesting that this is a saying that is in the, in the Corinthian church or in the Corinthian society. He's done this before in this, in this particular letter. He will take something that is a common um, phrase that's being used by the people. So we all know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know that he ought to know. It's like, you, if you think you know, you don't know that you don't know. But you know when you know that you don't know. Did I say it right? I tried to practice it. <laughs> because there's this idea that we have all the answers. We, don't, we have Wikipedia. We don't need anything else. It's all the answers to everything about the world. And so... And if we don't know, we can look it up very quickly and have the answer. That's our mentality. Our knowledge is at our fingertips in a way that's never been before in society. Paul's not really talking about this. Because he is saying that there are those who are setting themselves up as the authorities in that congregation. They are the ones who are saying, we know. And if you eat that meat, you are taking in abomination. What? But I didn't know it was sacrificed to idols. See, here was the problem. 
when a, and this isn't, we're not talking um, the sacrifices in the temple or the synagogues or anything of that nature. We're talking about pagan animal sacrifice. So, if you remember, you have a society where there's a God on every corner and a God for everything. Everything from you know, vegetables to rain to fire. I mean, just there were gods everywhere. And if you ever visit the ancient ruins of any of these societies, you can walk down a sidewalk and there's boom, boom, different gods on every corner or carved into some column or something. They were just making sure that they covered their bases. So when they went to sacrifice an animal, one third of it was cut, usually the right side, and that was placed on the altar and burned. A third, usually the left side, was what was given to the priests, and the priests would then, that's what they ate, that's how they had their daily food. Anything left over, or anything that the priests could not use, was then sold very, very inexpensively into the marketplace. It was a source of revenue for the priests, and that ended up being on the front at Safeway. So, as I, I wrote it here, has anyone ran into someone who has asked, where you've been asked the question, are these eggs free from free-range chickens? Like it changes what the egg is like? No, it just means the chickens get to run free in the backyard. It's just they're not in cages. It doesn't change the egg. It changes the, the treatment of the animal. Or is this, is this clothing ethically sourced? That's a new woke phrase that's out there. Um, you know, in other words, they use child labor or anything of that nature. So we have this kind of questions today. They have the same kind of questions about the meat. So here's the problem. If you, if say I went, and Tom is a pagan, so we all know that. So I went over to Tom's house for lunch and he serves me a meat sandwich. Do I eat it as a Christian or not? Because I don't know where that meat came from. And if I ask him, I offend him. So I just simply declined the invitation. Well, now there's no opportunity for evangelism. Now there's no opportunity to share Christ with the man because I'm more concerned about what kind of meat he has in his house. You have the other problem was marriage festivals. Again, you're invited to this big thing and all the, the, the spread is out. And, but you don't know where this stuff came from. And the Christians were asking, when we take this evil meat and put it inside us, are we, putting, are we defiling our bodies? Because there's one other aspect that isn't even mentioned here, but there was a belief that demons, the one way demons could get inside you was by getting into the food you eat. So if you ate something that had been defiled, then you put it in you and, oh, now the demons have free reign. Who knows 
I, you know, this crossed my mind last night. When someone got food poisoning because the meat had gone bad, did they blame it on the demon that was in the meat? I don't know, but it, I kind of went, well, we, we store our stuff in refrigerated containers and, we, and freezers. We can keep meat forever. There, they had to, what, salt it to preserve it or cook it ahead of time, turn it into jerky so that it would last. But if it, you know, soured while waiting, it could, someone could get very sick very quickly. There you go. They're in Cheez-Its. Demons are in boxes of Cheez-Its. We all know that. How many boxes of Cheez-Its do you have in a week? <laughs> we won't talk about that. And they're, and they're better now because they're toasted. Anyway. Um, The idea of knowledge is throughout New Testament passages. Paul writes about it consistently. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, going back to our verse right here, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Philippians 1.9, he writes, This I pray, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Are we seeing a connection here? Because he says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Verse 3, if anyone loves God, he's known by God. So we're starting to get a principle set up right here in the first few verses that ends up, he doesn't come back to it, but he could very easily. That the abiding principle is love. Not whether or not you should eat the meat, but the love that you have for the person into the situation that you're in. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols. We know that an idol is no real existence and there is no God but one. And again, those are in quotes, which means he's probably quoting from the letter. And that's really good theology. I mean, there's, there's idols are nothing. Why are we concerned about it? They're, they're pieces of stone and metal. You can walk up to Buddha and, you know, clink on a tummy and you'll get an echo. There's nothing in there. And he says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, the Lord, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, very important word in verse 7. However, not everyone knows this. Some 
through former association with idol, and the words former association literally can mean being intimate with or habitual contract with idols. Eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, there are those who don't understand that idols mean nothing, who don't understand that it really doesn't matter what you eat. They see it as a problem. And so for them, they, in their lack of understanding, perceive that this kind of activity is sinful. And therefore, their own conscience is defiled and they begin, uh, their faith is undermined. Food will not condemn, commend us to God, says verse 8. We're no worse off if we don't eat. We're no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So in other words, you know, for you, you understand it's not a big deal. But if someone observes you doing that, and they are weak, could you be causing that person's faith to stumble or fade or fall away? This is illustrated by Paul Little in his book, How to Give Away Your Faith. I'll just quote it. Paul Little writes, I got some, first, some practical first-hand experience with the problem as a student conference in New Jersey some years ago. There I met a fellow, a salesman, who literally worshipped baseball before he became a Christian. He would slave away all winter long so that he would be completely free for his God in the summer months. For something like 12 years, he hadn't missed a single game in Philadelphia. He knew every batting average since 1910. He slept, ate, drank, and breathed baseball. And then he met Jesus, our Savior, and gave up his idol, leaving it at Jesus' feet. Toward the end of our rugged and somewhat exhausting conference, this fellow overheard me suggest to another staff member saying, hey, after the conference, let's go to the Connie Mack Stadium and see the Phillies. They're playing the St. Louis Cardinals. The salesman was staggered, much like I was staggered by finding cooking sherry in the refrigerator. The salesman was staggered, incredulous. He stared at me and demanded, how can you as a Christian go to a baseball game? Now, I've heard a lot of taboos in Christian circles, but this is the first time I'd ever heard baseball being banned. I was flabbergasted and I didn't know what to say. <clears throat> and he asked a second time, how can you and Fred claim to be Christians and then go out to a ball game? Fred and I started thinking and discussing the situation as we talked to the salesman who uncovered his problem. Here was a man like the Christians in Rome, a former idol worshiper. Baseball had been a big thing to him, and now he assumed that anybody who saw a game ate meat. However, removed from idolatrous intents, was worshiping baseball as an... And, and in other words, anyone who saw a game, however removed from idolatrous intent, was worshiping baseball as an idol. Fred and I canceled our baseball date since our going would have needlessly disturbed our friend at a sensitive stage in his Christian life. 
But as we talked and counseled him, he gradually realized that not all Christians find baseball to be a problem. With his background, baseball will probably be a dangerous temptation to him for the rest of his life, and this he knows. But later, he also saw he could not legislate to Christians who have no problem with the sport. And it heartened us to see him to mature in his attitudes. Then H.A. Ironside has a story of a Muslim convert who came over to their place for sandwiches, and the young man graciously refused to eat the ham sandwich. And Dr. Ironside said, but you're a follower of Christ. Don't you realize there's no food restrictions? Those have been taken away. You're free to eat the ham sandwich. And he said, yes, I know that. I am free to eat ham. I am also free not to eat ham. I am the only Christian in my family. And so far, I've had the freedom to go home and share my new life in Christ with my mom and dad. And every time I go to the front door, my dad asks, have those infidels taught you to eat that filthy pig meat yet? And I can look at my dad in the eye and say, no, dad, I do not eat pork, which gives me an entree. So he gave up the freedom not to eat the ham sandwich. The problem comes is that this almost becomes a form of situated ethics for every Christian. I've read so many stories in my research for this passage. There was one man who they were going to be meeting a woman for a counseling session and his friend said, whatever you do, do not mention that you go bowling. Okay, I didn't know bowling was an issue of Christianity, but all right. So he never mentioned bowling in the presence of that woman. In talking to the woman, he discovered that in growing up, the bowling alley, the pool hall, and the bar were the same building. And it was where all of the bad people in town went. It was where the drugs were happening, where the you know, sexuality, all that horrible stuff was happening in that building. So she applied bowling as a litmus test. So I just didn't bring it up. You see how weird we get? But the principle is he said, however, in counseling and in discussions, her faith matured to where she realized that she could not use that as a means to describe or undescribe holiness. It was simply something in her past, and it comes back to the activity of the people, not the event itself, the sport itself. So I struggle with this, you know? I mean, you can ask questions like, um, is it necessary? If it's an issue that you say, should I do this or should I not do this? You can ask, is it necessary? You can ask, does it build up or does it tear down? You can ask, is it helpful? You can also ask, does this glorify God? I've seen, in fact, I didn't bring it with me, but I've seen <coughs> lists of questions like this as long as 10 or 12 questions long. The problem is, is you can ask that about anything. And you end up being an ascetic monk on a pole in the middle of the desert 
for fear that you might do something to someone to offend them. So where do we draw the lines? I mean, this is a massive issue in the Christian publishing world and Christian fiction. What's appropriate? What words are allowed? What words are not allowed? What actions are allowed? What actions are not allowed in, in the reading? And the problem is everyone defines the, themselves. As I like to say is that if you want to write on the edge, okay, so who defines the edge? You or me or the reader? And guess what? The edge is in a different place in everybody's hearts. So let's just pull it back here so we don't fall over that edge. Because once you fall over it, you can't get back up. I don't have any grand answers here. I do know that Romans 14, verses 14 to 16 says this, I know that I am persuaded that in the Lord Jesus Christ nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. And when I was looking this up, I actually read the wrong verse first. I read chapter 15, verse 14, and it says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And this is where the body of Christ comes together, in love. Do we stand in a, you know, in concrete and say that's wrong or do we stand in concrete and say just deal with it that's not loving either way and that principle of love I think is the abiding principle that Paul ultimately is trying to convey and I have gone way over time so I need to close with a quick word of prayer Lord thank you for our time together exploring big and difficult topics in um, in a very short period of time. Just ask, Lord, that you put it on our hearts to think through these things, to seek your face, as we are called, to follow you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.